0: and welcome to the Kotzk Podcast. I'm Jordan Wozniak.
1: And I am Gavin Michael.
0: This is Episode 6, Geniza Document Reveals First Stirrings of Anti-Maimonidean Sentiment in Egypt. Good afternoon, Gavin. How are you today?
1: Hi, Jordan. I'm very fine. And you?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We are talking about uh, an interesting topic in Jewish history today, as we usually try to do, uh, which is uh, looking a little bit back at the history of how Maimonides – Who's known in Hebrew by his uh, acronym, the Rambam, uh, was received in his day and how he was perceived by the community that uh, that uh, he lived in in Egypt. So we should probably start by talking a little bit about the Rambam. He's arguably the most famous of Jewish philosophers, and uh, in terms of his writings on halacha and Jewish law, he's extremely prominent as well. But uh, and we hold him in very high regard today uh, across the entire Jewish world, but. He wasn't without his controversies in his day. I would say that's a fair a fair summary, isn't it?
1: Um, I think that's more than fair. Um, I think that's a bit of an understatement, but yes. Oh, we have a, an
0: interesting story uh, related to this about uh, some documents from the Rambam's day. So actual handwritten documents letters, uh, accounts, uh, bits of texts that are otherwise not known that were discovered in uh, the Cairo Geniza that attest to how Rambam's uh, peers, if you want to put it that way, his contemporaries at least, uh, perceived him and uh, the reaction to him uh, uh, in Egypt in the Cairo area uh, when he lived there in uh, the 1100s, early 1200s. So tell us the story about, about how this started, how these documents were discovered, where they came from and what they reveal.
1: All right. Um, About a century ago, there was a German Orientalist by the name of Jürgen Mittwoch. He died in 1942, and uh, he obviously was a scholar interested in Jewish history. He published a very unique text that was found in the Cairo Geniza. He published it in a journal at the time, a German journal. A very unique text because it described the Rambam almost in his own home, certainly in his own hometown. And it described the Rambam in a way that had never really been described before by a, a contemporary, by someone who was living with him, and in fact someone who, in um, in a way, knew more about Rambam than probably anybody else at the time. Mm -hmm. And um, the story goes as follows. The Karaganiza was discovered in the late 1800s. The Karaganiza was basically a shameless box. Many many shuls have a box behind the Arun Kodesh where they throw away old books. They don't throw them away. They store them until... um, they get taken to the cemetery where they they get buried because we we don't like to throw throw away books or old Talasim etc. So in Cairo, actually in Fostet, which is ancient Cairo, it's just outside Cairo today. In in, in Fostet, there was a Jewish shul, a, a very very strong Jew, Jewish community, and um, for a thousand years they had been storing away their sheamus, and it appears as if no one bothered to clear out their storage, uh, which has also been called by some people as sacred trash, although it's far from trash. And mm-hmm. the uh, um, documents that were discovered in the late 1800s from this Cairo Geniza, Geniza basically means a storage house or a hiding place. Um, it was a little uh, room in in the old shul in um, Cairo. Apparently it was infested with snakes, one little dark window. No one had really climbed in there to look around at the uh, um, old manuscripts. But what they found was incredible. They actually found writing, Kisve Yad, handwriting from all the greats in Jewish history, including the um, Rambam. And it gives us a view of Judaism that even the greatest historians weren't weren't aware of prior to this, the discovery of, of this Cairo Geniza. But back to our story. Our German orientalist Jürgen Mittwoch finds himself in Cairo just a few years after the Cairo Geniza was discovered. And in those days you could buy manuscripts in the marketplace. You know, it wasn't uh, considered that rare. It would have been wonderful Mm -hmm. living in those times. Imagine walking around and someone offers you a manuscript and it's a manuscript of the Rambam or from someone from the time of the Rambam 800 odd years ago. Um, And that's what he did. He bought this manuscript and he um, sees that it was written by someone who knew the Rambam very well. In other words, someone who was a contemporary of the Rambam. And he publishes this document in a journal. But once again, in those days, for some reason, nobody paid much attention to this journal. And this wonderful discovery of this inside view into the Rambam was largely unnoticed by even the scholarly public.
0: Now, Mitvach didn't know who had written this bit of manuscript that he had Correct. come into possession of, right?
1: Correct. He referred to it as an anonymous text. Yes, yes. He didn't know who the author was. He had no idea who the author was, but just by reading it, he could see that this was someone who was very close to the Rambam. And in that sense, mm-hmm. it was a very unusual text, a very personal text. Um, so, many years passed, and... Mittwoch is a professor at the Berlin University, and the Nazis come to power. They keep Mittwoch on as a professor because he knew about um, Ethiopian culture, more about Ethiopian culture than anyone else. That was the reason why they kept him on, and he Hmm. remained in his position as as, as a professor at Berlin University, but eventually things got so hectic that he managed to escape, and he escaped to England. But in the turmoil of the escape, um, this manuscript was lost. His original manuscript was lost. Obviously, the published version was still in the journal, but no one really knew about the journal, journal. So for all intents and purposes, the discovery was lost to history. Hmm. Then, amazingly, about 70 years later, in 2004, Professor Paul Fenton, he's from the Sorbonne University, he's an interesting man. He had a yeshiva training and he became a, uh, an academic and he's regarded as, as, as an expert and a specialist in ancient Hebrew and Arabic texts. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he found himself in Jerusalem at the Institute for Microfilmed Hebrew Manuscript in Yerushalayim. And he's looking through texts. And he's looking through texts within a very little known collection of old manuscripts, which is known as the soffer collection, which is in London. He's looking at this in microfilm. And this collection had many or has many Geniza fragments. And while he's looking through the texts, one text catches his eye. This is how how trained he was to. Look at right. manuscripts. Would you believe it? He recognized the handwriting of one of the manuscripts. It was an 800-year-old hmm. handwriting, and he knew who the author was. He knew who the writer was. It was Hanan ben Shmuel al-Amshati. Hanan al-Amshati was the chief judge of Cairo. He died a decade, a couple of decades after Um, Rambam, but he was a contemporary of, of the Rambam, but he recognized Hanan's handwriting from other documents with which he was familiar with. Now this is astounding because this is only something that an expert would be able to determine. He actually was able to identify the writer of this text, and he reads through the text, and he puts two and two together, and he realizes because he was aware of the published text that Mitvoch had published 70 years earlier, he was aware um, of the contents, and he realized that he had, in fact, rediscovered the original lost manuscript. So the manuscript that everyone thought that was lost during the Nazi era, era was, in fact, safely housed in the Soffer collection in London, and it appears as if he was the first person to actually find it, rediscover it, and certainly the first person to know its context and to know who had, had written it. But this text is fascinating because, once again, it gives us such an incredible insight into not just the Rambam, but into what you alluded to right in the beginning, Jordan, the Maimonidean, the Maimonidean controversies. Many people aren't even aware that there were Maimonidean controversies. I know the Rambam was a little bit controversial because of his interest in philosophy, but his controversies um, were far reaching, especially in the century or so after, after his death. And these Maimonidean controversies went to actually shape, went on to shape, the future um, Jewish theological debate. Mysticism versus rationalism, this is something that should never, ever be underestimated because today we presented with only one side of of the picture, but this was something that consumed Jews basically since the time of the Rambam for 800 years.
0: And it wasn't just a fringe ideological debate either. This was about, this ended, you know, in effect, it was a discussion about the core nature of Judaism, about what constituted proper practice of Judaism and what was, you know, borderline Kafira right, borderline heresy, what was, what was, you know, native to Judaism and what was foreign to Judaism, and there was accusations Absolutely. of Absolutely. foreign influence, as, you know, which is a big part of the story as well, as we go through some of the Rambam's family
1: and close associates. It uh, was a practices. core debate, a core debate on Jewish theological issues. And in order to understand Judaism today, one has to understand the parameters of that debate. For me, this is one of the most crucial aspects of, of Jewish history. And this discovery was so fascinating because not only did it give us insight into the Maimonidean controversies, for which there's quite a lot of data, but it gives us an insight into the first stirrings of this controversy. In other words, the genesis of the controversy taking place within the Rambam's own family and under his very nose in his home city, Fustat, Cairo at the time. So we have an insight from the, these documents into the original beginnings and the stirrings of what was to become the famous Maimonidean controversies later. So this document was a very very important document.
0: Absolutely, and we should talk about some of these texts because what, as I read through your blog post on this subject, one of the things that fascinated me, you know, among many other things, was um, the the family, you know, the internecine division, right? The division within the family, because I think that you know many people may have heard in passing of the Rambam's son, right? Who we call Rav Abraham, Rav Abraham ben Harambam, right? Av- Abraham, son of the Rambam. But uh, you know, I certainly had heard of him, but I didn't really know anything about him. But he was kind of an anti-Maimonidean, <laughs> if you right, could put it that Rambam's way. Right, the Rambam's
1: own son, and in fact, the Rambam's only son <laughs> right. turned out to be one of the um, protagonists of the opposition movement against his own father, against the um, Rambam. And his story, the Rambam's son story in itself, is is a, also a fascinating story. Uh, he he became a Jewish Sufi, and by, by that I don't mean that he became something unusual. It was quite normal in the Jewish community in Cairo at that time for Jews to be interested in mysticism, a kind of mysticism that was related to Sufism, and that is even... It even has a special term, Judeo-Sufism, which was very, very popular and wasn't regarded as something extraneous to, to Judaism. It probably was mm. like Hasidism is today. It was a mystical movement within Judaism, very much connected to Sufism. We can talk about that at some, some later stage because there's, there, are, there are many areas where there was an interchange between Sufism and Jewish mysticism throughout Jewish history. And the Jewish Sufis... A very strange-sounding term, but they claimed that Sufism was actually originally a part of Judaism and the original Jewish mysticism, which we then lost and was later taken over by some of the um, Muslims. But what's also interesting is that what was happening to the Jewish community in Cairo at that time was an exact reflection of what was happening in the Muslim community. In Cairo at that time. Because until Mm -hmm. that time, the Muslim community had been quite a rational community. They'd written about science, they'd written about history, they'd written about mathematics. And round about the time of the Rambam, there was a switch and a change in their Weltanschung, and they became more interested in mysticism. I'm talking about the uh, Muslims now. And Mm -hmm. they moved into a form of Sufism, particularly in Egypt and particularly in Cairo. That became the center of Islamic Sufism, Muslim Sufism. And the Jews were also influenced by that turn to mysticism. So the Rambam was born really at the wrong time. For hmm, yeah. for the father of Jewish rationalism, you know, they should have he should have chosen another time. He was in the wrong place, literally at the wrong time, and his own son right. became one of the leaders of the Jewish Sufi movement in Cairo uh, at at that time.
0: Part of Rav Avraham ben Harambam's circle was this Rav Hanan al Amshati, Hanan El ben al Amshati, who was. You know, he he may have been related to them, right? There's quite a possibility that he was actually part of the family by marriage. But he was uh, an ardent supporter of of Avraham ben Harambam in contradistinction to the Rambam himself.
1: Right. Um, There are a number of views on how Rabbi Hananel was related to the Rambam. But it seems likely that his daughter married Avraham ben Harambam. So he would have been a mechutten or an in-law mm. to the Rambam. He was a little bit younger than the Rambam. In fact, some people say that he may have even been a student of the Rambam. But he started out being a very close follower of the Rambam, ironically. And the Rambam mm. actually chose him, chose Rabbi Hanano originally, to copy one of his rational works, the Morin of him, the guide for the perplexed for a, a client. And that's also an interesting story. He was chosen, Rabbi Hananel was chosen to copy this manuscript because the Rambam had a very distinctive handwriting. I always joke that we can see that the Rambam was a doctor from his handwriting because no one can read his <laughs> handwriting, but he had right. a very, very distinctive handwriting. Um, and Andalusian style handwriting. Andalusia is the south of Spain. The Andalusian handwriting was something that the Jews from that area took great pride in their distinctive handwriting. And in fact, it had come from just across the ocean, from across the Mediterranean Sea, from North Africa, where the Maghreb, those were the Jews of North Africa, had perfected that particular style of handwriting, which just sort of moved across the ocean I believe on a clear day you can see from Morocco across the ocean to Gibraltar so it wasn't terribly far and to Lucia from North Africa and the Jews living Mm -hmm. in southern Spain adopted that style of handwriting which the Rambam of course used and Rabbi Hanana although he wasn't born he was a fourth generation um, Egyptian Jew he His family had adopted that style of handwriting, so he was able to decipher the Rambam's handwriting. So that's just an interesting aside as to the possible reason why he was chosen to to copy this uh, rational work of of the Rambam. But as time passed, Rabbi Hananel turned against the Rambam. And he seems to have turned against the Rambam, his teacher, in quite a bitter way, he, he wrote a book, almost dafka, a book called Sefer Hamitzvot. And that work has exactly the same name as a work by the Rambam himself, Sefer Hamitzvot. Hmm. But he tried to write a Sefer HaMitzvot that was better than the Sefer HaMitzvot of the Rambam. So he tried to outdo his, his teacher. And his Sefer HaMitzvot was a lot more elaborate. The Rambam was often criticized for being quite terse and short, short and uh, not really quite sources. And he did everything that the Rambam was criticized for. And he put that in his Sefer HaMitzvot and, and he had the audacity to use the same name, to kind of nail his colors to the mast so to speak and he, he came out as an official opponent of the, of the Rambam and in fact he wrote that the Rambam's teachings were irreligion and heresy so he wasn't just an opponent but he was classifying Rambam as someone who was an enemy of the Jewish religion and he joined with his son-in-law Avram ben Rambam. So now we have an amazing thing in Cairo, in the Rambam's own home, the Rambam's own son and his mechutan, his his in-law, um, are experiencing theological um, fault lines that then started penetrating outwards to the Jewish community in Cairo in general. And these were the beginnings of the stirrings of the anti-Maimonidean controversies, right, as we mentioned earlier, under the very nose of the Rambam.
0: And we should mention that these controversies are not, uh, they're not about halacha per se, right? They're not about practical Jewish law, or the practice of daily Jewish life, or, you know, what's permitted on Shabbat, what's not permitted, you know, Kashrut, that kind of thing. It's not about that. It's right. about the philosophy. It's about theology. It's about conceptions of the divine and the role of rationalism versus, you know, mystical ideas. That's that's where this controversy really lay. I mean, there may be, you know, Maimonides, like, as you just mentioned, had a particular way of explaining Jewish law in a kind of very terse way. I remember reading that the Rambam, in a way, kind of discouraged the study of Talmud because he felt, or you know, only experts needed to do that, and the common people should just read a law code and learn what to do from that. But, but this is really this debate is really about philosophy, about theology, and uh, and the conception of the role of God in daily life. It's not about practical execution
1: of Jewish law. Right. Gen- generally speaking, um, Rambam was never really criticized for his halacha. I mean, he wrote his um, Mishnah Torah. Um, maybe people didn't like his style, but it's, that certainly wasn't the cause of the anti-Maimonidean controversies. No one really took, took issue with his view of, of halacha. It was his views on theology that are uh, sometimes regarded as quite earth-shattering because they, they really are amazing views. Um, right, a, a lot of Jews are not really aware of what the Rambam actually believed in.
0: And so one of the big ones in this area is Rambam's view on divine providence, right? We talk about the, the concepts of hashkacha uh, paratit, hashkacha kalalit. Basically, you know, those are, those are Jewish philosophical terms for, you know, what the, what's the conception of uh, divine intervention in daily life. But maybe you can take us through, uh, you know, the, the, the providence issue. Uh, from the Maimonidean and the anti-Maimonidean sides.
1: Yeah, the Rambam's views were so controversial that, in fact, uh, some of the fragments in the Cairo Geneser say that not only was Avram Ben Rambam and Rabbi Hanano against these views of the Rambam, but even the Rambam's own father, Rabbi Maimun, um, there are documents that attest that the Rambam's own father would not read the writings of his son, the Rambam. So the Rambam's views mm. are very, very radical views. And wh- One of the criticisms was, was against the Rambam's view of divine providence. Once again, I say that today we are largely presented with only one view, which is the mystical view, where nothing happens unless... It is absolutely controlled to the most minuscule detail by Hashem himself. A leaf doesn't fall from a tree and land in a spot facing this way, facing that way, unless it was preordained by, by God. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fine. That's fine. That's a Jewish belief, but it's a Jewish mystical belief. The rationalist belief is that that is not the case. Um, the Rambam was of the, of the view that under certain circumstances, God employs a different technique to run the world, and that's known as Hashkacha Kalalit, where God looks after providence in a general manner, not Hashkacha Pratit, where God takes care of providence in an individual minuscule, you know, concerned with the minuscule details. And what's what's interesting about the Rambam's view is that you cannot find the, the Rambam's view on providence or his views on any of his deep theology in his Mishneh Torah. I think that's an important point to mention. The Mishneh Torah right. he wrote as a summary of the Gomorrah. And yes. um, that doesn't mean that he necessarily believed everything that he wrote. It also doesn't mean that he didn't believe it. But I'm just saying that he's, you don't find his theology. people. So many people make the mistake by reading through Mishnah Torah and thinking that they understand the Rambam. They don't. The Rambam wrote the Mishnah Torah when he was young. He wrote his um, Guide for the Perplexed in 1190, which was 14 years before he died. So his Morin Avuchim contained his theology, not just his summary, his technical summary of the Talmud, which became essentially one of the first halachic works known as the Mishnah Torah. So one has to look. At, at the writings of the Rambam in his rationalist works, not in his halachic writings.
0: Right. Put another way, you could say that you know the the Mishnah Torah is an object of daily study for a lot of religious Jews, whereas the Moreh Nevuim is not an object of daily study for huge numbers of people.
1: In fact, it's discouraged. <laughs> yeah, yes. Right. Yes. Um, in fact, not only discouraged, it's actually banned. Reb Nachman of Breslev said, do not study the works of the philosophers, and he was referring to the uh, Rambam himself. So in a lot of Hasidic circles, it's actually banned. But hmm. the Rambam's view wow. of 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 providence is, is is quite a complicated view. I mean, one, one has to look at various books. His Mamar uh, on Triatamaitim is another work that not too many people know about, but one needs to read these works to to understand because sometimes the Rambam says one thing in one book and he says something in in another book. So it it is quite hard to to come to grips with the Rambam's view, particularly on issues such as as um, providence, but. The, the point that I want to make is that um, the people who acknowledge that the Rambam had radical views on providence, um, they say, yes, he did. But they draw a, a line, and it's a very convenient line for them. They say he believed in Haskacha Klalit, um, which is um, and so, sort of a general providence that God takes care of of the species when it comes to non-humans or perhaps non jews or or, or or perhaps non 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 scholars hmm. but when it comes to scholars then god takes care of the scholar right down to the last detail, Haskacha uh, pratit right um and that's sort of a comfortable way, I think, of, of, of dealing with the Rambam's issues. I say, yes, he made those dis- distinctions, but the more worthy the man, the more worthy he becomes of being a recipient of God's providence, God's um, um, individual providence as opposed to God's general providence. However, and this once again is where these texts that we're speaking about today are, uh, come in, and they, they, they are so important, not just from a historical point of view, but they're from a theological point of view. Because in these texts, Avram Rambam and Rabbi Hananel and others criticize the Rambam's view on providence, but they do not make that comfortable distinction that we just mentioned. Now that scholars are, are you know, are subject to individual divine providence, whereas perhaps ants and bees fall under the rubric of 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 general of, of, of a general haskacha klalit. Um, because in the writings that we find from the Cairo Geniza, the Rambam is criticized for applying haskacha even to human beings. And if I'm not Mm -hmm. mistaken, this is probably one of the only areas, there might be other areas, I'm I'm not aware of them, where we actually get a very clear view that the Rambam was not afraid to sometimes, I I want to be very careful how one puts it, but the Rambam was not afraid to sometimes apply hashgacha general providence, where God takes care of the species, not the individual, um, to human beings. Because that was what the Rambam was criticized for during the original uprising against the Rambam's theology. So that I think is a very, very important point because they wouldn't have criticized the Rambam for his belief in in, in or, or for, for his belief in providence. Had his belief in providence not been so controversial,
0: right, right, and so it's not only providence. I mean, providence—the hashkacha pratit versus hashkacha kalalit—you know who, who these things apply to—is one side of the maimonidean controversy. But another side of it is what the rambam's views on on, uh, on prophecy were. Um, what, what, what exactly were Who exactly were the Nevi'im, and what did they see, and what was the nature of their prophecy? That was very controversial, and I think probably also an area where a lot of people would also be surprised at what the Rambam believed.
1: Once again, Jordan, that is um, spot on. Um, the Rambam's view on, on prophecy, the Rambam's view on angels, something that most Jews, I think, are are unaware of. Rambam didn't believe that angels, for example, manifest in a real way, even the way it's depicted in the Torah, because the Rambam says that every time an angel appeared, not not every time, but very often it says, and he lifted up his eyes. In other words, the, the angel, according to the Rambam, didn't manifest in a physical sense, as is generally understood and seems to be the tenor of the, text of the Torah itself, the Rambam's view was that the person who saw the angel and interacted with the angel interacted with the angel in his mind, in his imagination. Mm. There was no manifestation. It took place in the imagination. And the same thing the Rambam says applies to prophecy. The prophecy took place within the imagination of the prophet. Um which of of course is an extremely controversial view to take considering the way most people understand prophecy.
0: And considering the way that it's presented in the books of the Niveim, right, on, on a surface level, if you, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a jarring uh, disconnect to read what Rambam's view on it was.
1: Yes, and in the way it's presented within even the writings of some of the sages today who are are lauded and regarded as being great, great teachers and rebbers, and possibly even some of the gadolim as well, who many people believe have a spirit of uh, prophecy. Um, the Rambam's views would be tremendously shocking to such people.
0: So the, the anti-Maimonidean reaction to Rambam's views on divine providence and his views on prophecy and on angels... We mentioned before they they are connected with the milieu of Egypt at that time, right? They're connected, you know. This this term, when I read it first in your article, Judeo Sufi, my mind I kind of shook my head a bit. I said, oh, "Did I read that correctly, Judeo Sufi?" <laughs> yes. It sounds, you know, it, it's it's an unusual thing to read, right? It's a, a kind of maybe syncretic. Uh, uh, a terminology that's describing a fusion of religious concepts from Islam and Judaism which is a bit you know very foreign to us today but it was part and parcel of that world in Egypt where there was a very strong Jewish community both rabbinic and karaite Jews right so it's another another side of this picture that we don't often talk about yes. but uh, in close contact with this arab world that was undergoing its own transition from rationalism to mysticism. And as you say, you know, Egypt was probably not the right place for the Rambam to be doing his work at that time in the late 1100s, maybe very, very early beginnings of the 1200s because of that transition. But there were other parts of the Mediterranean world where perhaps his message was better received and where he had more support, uh, including France, southern France in particular.
1: Right. So it seems as if the Rambam didn't have terribly much support in, in Cairo. And mm-hmm. he he wrote a letter to um Rabbi Jonathan Acohan of Lunel in southern France. But it's quite it's quite a, a desperate letter. Uh, let me quote this letter to you. He says, My colleague, so he's clearly the Rambam is clearly regarding the rabbis of southern France as as his friends. Mm-hmm. Um they're on his side. Not too many people on, are on his side. And then he, he continues at this difficult time. So he's acknowledging the fact that he's, he's in trouble. And the Rambam says, you and those that reside in your region, once again, basically saying, you, you Jews of southern France are the only people who are prepared to listen to me and accept my views and possibly even help me. Are the only ones that hold aloft the banner of, of Moses? I think he's referring to himself, or he might mm-hmm. even be referring to Judaism in general, that the Ramban believed that his views were actually the views of Moses, of, of, of Moshe Rabbeinu in general. I'm not sure he, who he's referring to as, as Moses over here. But anyway, he says something interesting. He says, while you study Talmud, you cultivate the other sciences, whereas here in the East, in other words, in Egypt, men of wisdom diminish and disappear Thus, salvation will only come to us through you. So the Rambam in effect is saying that the only intelligent Jews left in the world are the Jews in southern France because men of wisdom have diminished and they've disappeared here in Egypt. Why? Because they've all become mystics. And he didn't regard these people as people of science and knowledge, whereas the rabbis of southern France studied Talmud, but they also studied other sciences as well. And that was part of the Rambam's system.
0: And his use of the word salvation is a very strong term, right? Very, very strong salvation is going to come from you.
1: Yes, he was under siege and he was looking for all the help that he could get.
0: Yes, absolutely, and so this, so the Rambam died in twelve oh five. If I'm remembering, twelve oh four, and yeah. but that that was not the end of the Maimonidean controversies, right? Because in the generations after his passing, uh, there the polemical attacks on his works continued from a lot of different quarters that basically were it, it was the rationalist versus mystic debate that just continued on uh, surrounding his writings even after his death.
1: Right, for at least a century, they were. Um Certainly, three major outbreaks of this controversy, but in effect, it continues to to this day, to this very very day. And this this debate on what are the core issues on on Judaism, because once again, we we find ourselves in a situation where only one side is is presented to the um, mainstream, and it just perpetuates itself to become ingrained within the uh, mainstream.
0: And so, overall, I mean this this topic that we're discussing, um, like you say, it didn't end, (laughs) you know, it's still, it's still kind of going on. I mean, this was the, the, the seeds of it perhaps existed before the Rambam. The Rambam was the best exemplar of the philosophical rational approach within Judaism. And then, you know, we have, uh, the rejection of it. And not only just the rejection of it as saying, you know, this isn't really the way we want to go, but it was a rejection of Rambam's approach as being foreign, foreign to Judaism, not something that is, you know, as uh, relating to our last podcast episode, not something that was part of our Masora. Okay, there's this right. uh, desire to hang on to the Masora, and by that time, the Masora was seen as a mystical one, I guess you could say,
1: which came from from the uh, Sufis.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. So it's they're they're taking the presence and maybe projecting it onto the past, and you know, as as we uh, you know all, it's a yeah. human bias to think that the which past was misura? a lot like the present. Yes. yes. Which Masora is absolutely, and you know this this quote from this uh, Daniel Al Mashati that Maimonides was bringing something that he did not learn from a Jew. Yes, uh, this is the, yes. the accusation against him is that this is not Jewish, and uh, um, that he's dividing uh, Judaism and uh, into two religions. And uh, this concept of two religions, of that you know this isn't true Judaism. This is bringing a foreign element into Judaism. Is uh, is an accusation that we still hear. Right, it's a uh, it's something that we still bring in, and uh, you know, and every it seems like every generation, if I can go so far as to say this, brings its own spin on this and finds its own element of you know what I would say is uh, something with precedent within Judaism to declare as not Judaism, <laughs> and we see those in controversies to this day.
1: Yeah, um, once again, the mainstream view is depicted as being a monolithic and homogenous Theology that was always there, passed down since the time of of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, And yet we see that their influences are just as interesting and perhaps even as questionable as the issues that are raised on the Rambam himself. They took from Sufism, right. the Rambam took from Aristotle. Which one of those is more, more Jewish at the end of the day? You know, which Messorah <laughs> yeah. is, is the correct Messorah? Um, once again, I don't think that we really need to be bothered by trying to come up with a definitive Messorah. I don't know whether that, that's possible, but one should certainly acknowledge that within our masora there are two very well-defined streams, and each has a very solid claim on the Masora, and that's something that people should be aware of. There is not just one side, which is the um, mystical side. Um, there's another side that people need to be made aware of as well, which is the side of the Rambam, the irrational side. Unfortunately, that side, just like during the time of the Rambam, when the Rambam was persecuted, the Rambam's theology and philosophy to this day has also been persecuted almost to extinction to the extent that Jews today do not recognize those views as even being a part of that Judaism. Not that they even have to accept it, but just an acknowledgement of the fact that these two streams um, should should be allowed to coexist within the, the general concept of the Jewish Messorah.
0: Yes, absolutely. And in the case of this story, if it weren't for the Cairo Geniza, we wouldn't know about all the details of this particular conflict in in the rambam's day between the Rambam and so his opponents. Absolutely
1: fascinating yes
0: we should i think at some point we should do a podcast episode specifically about the cairo geniza and what uh, what was found there and its overall uh, its overall impact on the study of the historical study of judaism because it's really a fascinating and probably you know if you think of it as archaeology it's not really archaeology because it's it's just manuscripts and uh um and it, it's part of a living religion but uh uh, you can put air quotes around the word archaeological, probably the most significant archaeological discovery in the history of Judaism. Yeah,
1: I like to refer it to as Hashkafic because we, we get an overview of various Jewish worldviews that many of us today are not even aware existed and are not aware that they're allowed to exist within the, or under the umbrella of, of Judaism. And that's why texts that we find in the Karaginiza are so fascinating because we see people who are very, very respected. We see some of the views that, that they espoused and obviously those views would fall under the uh, uh, category of, of Jewish um, hashkafa, Jewish theology, and uh, I believe that we are the richer for it. Those of us who are interested can pursue those views. It's not a one-size-fits-all.
0: Absolutely. Topics for more podcasts for sure. Right. (laughs) Thank you so much, Gavin, for today's discussion. This was really fascinating. Thank you. Bye bye.